I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 3. Once again, I'll read verses 9 through 31. Make my remarks based on this passage of Holy Writ. 19 through 31. That's the, it takes us to the end of the chapter. And so Paul writes to the church at Rome, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin." But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus." whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is the boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Oh, Father, make us mindful of this, the apostles' teaching on the theology of the gospel, O Lord, on the theology of the human soul, and of the goodness and grace of God himself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever hear anybody say, do you ever hear a Christian say, I don't like theology? <laughs> do you ever hear someone say, um, we need less of theology and uh, more of scripture or some absurd thing like that? Um, <clears throat> friends, if you don't like theology, this isn't your book. <laughs> Find another book. This is about theology, the study of God and the apostles, the great teacher. It's not a fearful word, theology. And for that matter, neither neither is the word philosophy a fearful word. But we'll get into that as we go through this. Because the Apostle Paul is systematically teaching, and I hope I can live up to his example for you in in this series and this morning. And I pray God's blessing upon us as we do that. And so we'll begin where... The text began in verse 19. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, 
that every mouth may be stopped. The apostle is trying to shut up all of the uh, excuses of man about the condition of their soul. He's trying to stop mouths. He's trying to end all of the superfluous arguments that somehow there is some other way into God's grace than the way that he provided. And so he's trying to show us that the law pointed to this very specific way, to this very specific time that he lived in, the time of Jesus Christ. We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may become guilty before God. He wants us all to see our guilt. That's the purpose of these first three chapters. And it will go on a bit as well in the book of Romans. But the purpose of these first three chapters is to establish guilt and to get people to recognize our need for a Savior. We are guilty before God of sin. Then he says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, what's another word for deeds? We use the word works, right? By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. In other words, following the law could never have justified you. For two reasons. One, you would never be able to follow it. And number two, which he states succinctly later on, and number two, it's not, it's not in your nature to follow the law of God. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Friends, the law is sort of a type of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The law is pointing to human sin and the pervasiveness of it for two reasons, that every mouth may be stopped and that all would become guilty before God. Friends, the law isn't there. In the final analysis, what it does is it helps us see the righteousness of God, but at the same time, it shows us the sinfulness of man, the exceeding sinfulness of man, and how far we are from the righteousness of God. The apostle's been proclaiming since the outset of this great epistle that world history had reached a moment when all men, Jew and Gentile, may avail themselves of the mercies of God. And he did it in a graphic way. A man on a cross proclaiming to the end the forgiveness of sins of even those who impaled him. The gospel of God is that great spiritual transaction, if you will, by which God himself has freed men from the guilt of sin, friends, but with with being freed from the guilt of sin, men are also freed from the penalty of sin. God the Father, in his magnanimous heart, his merciful heart, has designed a way to ameliorate the guilt of sin. He found a way where he can remain just and holy, where your sins could be paid for, where it would be free to you, no cost to you at all. Sounds too good to be true. Sounds like a politician making a promise. It won't cost us anything. Even in his introduction, he conforms himself to the purposes of God. Paul's an apostle of Christ, friends, and in his own words, he is separated to the gospel of God. That's his purpose. That's the purpose of the apostles. As he pens his great salutation at the beginning of this letter, he notes that though the timing of the coming of the gospel might have gone undetected, it certainly did, right? It went undetected. For they, what did he say to the Corinthians? They would not have crucified him if they had known he was the Lord of glory. So it went undetected. 
But the announcement that it would come was contained in the ancient passages of prophets, priests, and kings. The law and the, and the prophets announced the coming of Christ. And Paul makes this point to the Galatians, I think, and, uh, very explicitly when he says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He's quoting there Genesis 15, 6. All right? So it wasn't new. It goes all the way back. Remember, Christ lived and died some, let's say, some 2,000 years ago. More like 225 years. And Abraham lived some 2,000 years before that. The gospel was already old. And the scripture, in some form, even though Abraham was still had to wait 500 years to see the coming of Moses, but somehow the scripture was there and had something to say about these things. So Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness before the law ever came, which people thought was a works covenant. And so he writes to the Galatians, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. In other words, if you're sons of Abraham, Jews, then act like Abraham and believe God. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And don't complain that God's going to save the Gentiles too. And don't complain that he did it through faith and not through this scrupulous, tedious, meticulous following of statutes and ordinances, which really became their idol. And he says, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. The scriptures preached to Abraham beforehand. Friends, the scriptures preach to us. The scriptures have a voice. And what did the scriptures say? They said, in you, the nations of the world would be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. In other words, you're attached to the Abrahamic covenant by believing God by faith. This shouldn't have been an astounding revelation, but it was. And so the gospel's not purely a New Testament message. In fact, when he's preaching this, when he's writing this, the New Testament as we know it today did not yet exist. It was a work in progress, right? So the gospel was revealed anciently. It was revealed to Abraham a full 400 years before the law was given on Sinai. And the scriptures are the ancient roadmap that pointed the way of salvation from the very beginning. You know, sometimes I hear people say, Pastor Dan, you're so caught up in history. Well, get caught up in history, because by the time we get to chapter 8, you've got to know the history of the Bible to even follow what the apostle's saying. So let me do with you what I do on Thursday evenings. I get up at the whiteboard, and I draw a timeline, and there's a zero in the middle, even though the Romans didn't have a year zero. We do. We're smarter than the Romans. So we have the year zero, and we mark off 500-year increments going back in time, all right? So 500 years before Christ was the time of the, roughly speaking, the time of the Babylonian and Persian exiles, all right? 500 years before that, 1,000 years before Jesus is the reign of David and Solomon for 80 years, all right? 500 years before that is Moses in the wilderness. Imagine 500 years, almost twice as long as the United States has even been in existence. And we can go back all those increments back in time to the exile, to David a thousand years before Christ, to Moses 1,500 years before Christ, and to Abraham some 2,000 years before. And you have to know a little history here. You have to know that Abraham 
didn't have a codified set of uh, laws and commandments the way it happened 500 years later in Moses' time. This is some of the history we have to get immersed in in order for us to understand as we go through um, this great epistle of history and as history relates to doctrine. Gresham Machen, Gresham Machen, forgive me, Gresham Machen, <laughs> uh, great uh, theologian of, uh, I'm going to say circa 1920 at Princeton, when Princeton was starting to go liberal and he separated and they started another movement and another great um, theological uh, university, if you will. He said very simply, without history, doctrine makes no sense, friends. He said, Christ died, or rather, without doctrine, history makes no sense, I should say, but it works both ways. Christ died, he said, that's history. Christ died for our sins. That's doctrine, friends. That's theology. Everyone knows Christ died. You don't need one iota of understanding of doctrine or theology to know that he died. But to know that he died for our sins is the essential doctrine of the Christian faith. And so the gospel's not new, it's old. It's an ancient roadmap that pointed the way of salvation from the very beginning. And so it is to the scriptures that he appeals to prove that his announcement is not of human initiative, but is holy and entirely divine. The gospel, friends, has nothing to do with us except that it's a gift to us. It's like a gift to you on Christmas morning. You had nothing to do with it. You probably didn't deserve it. It says Santa knows who's naughty and nice, but he doesn't. I see a lot of naughty kids getting a lot of good stuff. Only Jesus knows if you're naughty or nice. So the gospel dispensation, as some like to call it, is no new invention. In other words, we can call it a new dispensation, and that essentially is what Paul is calling it here. He says all this stuff happened, but now this has happened. And he gives this line of demarcation with those famous words, but now, which I'm going to labor to death this morning. It was... um, and so it's not a, a new invention. It's not conceived in the first century in Jesus' time. It was conceived long before, before the foundation of the world. People that think that the gospel dispensation is somehow a plan B because it didn't work out with the law and the Jews that failed and God had to go back to the drawing board. Friends, if you, if you think that, then you, how can you understand what Paul's saying here? that the law and the prophets proclaimed the gospel ahead of time. How could anyone proclaim something ahead of time that wasn't already conceived in the mind of God? It was already prepared. God's sovereign work on history was, was a completed work from the very beginning, from what the Bible calls the foundation of the world. These things were already established of old. And so it is to the scriptures that he appeals to show us that it's all of God and not of us. Why? That every mouth may be stopped. And so it was conceived before the foundation of the world's friends. It had to be. Do you see that it had to be? It, how could it be? How could something be um, uh, prophetically uh, declared? How could something that isn't going to come about be revealed beforehand if it wasn't already conceived? Do you understand? For if the prophets announced it, it had to be already conceived in the mind of God. It was a work in progress since the fall, and the announcement of the Savior was also of old, going back even to the time of the fall. 
Now, Nathan the prophet, who we've talked about a bit in this series, announced famously to David that from his own seed, a future king would come. A thousand years before it came, before he came, I should say, it was announced. And he would be king forever. And so it was revealed to Nathan, Nathan revealed to David, rather, that when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I'll set up your seed after you. Your seed is your progeny. It's your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren down through the ages. And, and, this, and this king will come from your own body, and I'll establish his kingdom forever. Remember I told you good preachers are repetitive? Well, Nathan repeats it here. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. That's three times. It's the glory of a preacher to be repetitive. So God spoke of the coming of Solomon and the coming of Christ in a single prophetic announcement, right? And you can trace the Davidic kings, the kings that came from David down through the ages. And so David was clearly pivotal in the line of Christ. And insofar as the law was concerned, it was clearly revealed to him that it had no power in and of itself to save. Friends, David already knew the law couldn't save. That's what Paul's saying here. The law and the prophets announced the coming gospel, the dispensation in which we now live, he's telling to the Romans and to us. And so David wrote this. David, a great prophet himself, wrote to God, he said, you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. What a revelation that is. The whole of the Torah is a delineation of these meticulous preparations of sacrifices to God, right? But they were pictures, they were symbols of what's going on in the heart. What's the true sacrifice to God? That you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your mind. And so he says to God, you do not delight in burnt offering. How did he know that? These, the sacrifices of God, he says, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. That contrite means a, a contrition is when you look at your own sin. He said, these, O God, you will not despise. In other words, the gospel was never a gospel of works. Yes, you had to sac- do all the sacrifices down through the ages, but you had to do them in a right spirit. You had to do them with contrition of heart with a broken spirit of undeservedness before a God, a magnanimous God who shows mercy. So it's entirely a work of God. And the prophet reveals to us that the law is there to convict of sin. But insofar as being pleasing to God is concerned, a broken and contrite heart is the only proper sacrifice. And the prophet David knew that a thousand years before Jesus was impaled on the cross. And so the law itself announces the gospel. And what does he say at the end of this? At the end of this whole thing, verse 31, do we make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. The law had its purpose. Paul's not wiping out the law, but he's trying to teach the specific purposes of it for the faithful. And it has purposes for us today. Doesn't it bolster your faith to know that that Christ was um, 
revealed and proclaimed hundreds and thousands of years before it happened in some very specific language. It always amazes me how specific it could be. Isaiah is so specific that, uh, that some higher critics of the Bible believe that uh, it's a forgery that was written after the time of Christ. They tried to put that out there. And as for the announcement of the Messiah through the prophets, we read from Isaiah, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. Do you know who Jesse is? It's David's father. Okay? Remember Samuel came, and he knew that one of the sons of Jesse was going to be the, uh, the anointed king, but Samuel was this great prophet, the last of the judges, right? And he came to Jesse's house, and there were seven strapping sons there. And Eliab was the oldest, and the others all had their names. And as he went through, the, the Lord, the Spirit of God, didn't reveal to him that this was the one. And he went through all seven and says, something's wrong here. God can't be wrong. I'm speaking for him. I can't be wrong. Are you sure there's no one else? And they said, oh, yeah, there's one more, but he's out in the field. He's a kid tending the sheep. Sure enough, he goes out there and says, this is the man. Right? So the stem of Jesse, you got to know who Jesse is. And a branch shall grow out of his roots, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Remember when that happened to Jesus? The dove came and rested upon him. John the Baptist had said, he's the one who the Holy Spirit will rest upon. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord will be in him. Who else could he be talking about um, to have all that spiritual understanding, but the Lord of glory who was coming. That was, Jeremiah wrote that, and the, uh, he was a contemporary of, uh, of Daniel and Daniel's friends back in the Babylonian and Persian era, all right? Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. Oh, I'm sorry, that was Isaiah. This is Jeremiah. That was Isaiah. He's about 700 years before Christ in the Assyrian period, all right? Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Remember, Israel and Judah were separate kingdoms, right? Now, this is the name by which he will be called the Lord of righteousness. He prophesied Christ some five or six hundred years before he came. And so clearly Paul's not exaggerating the extent of which the recurring announcement of the visitation of Christ the Lord in the earth. He's not exaggerating that the scriptures portended this from the beginning. It's from Genesis to Malachi, friends, and the, and the examples of it go on and on. And so the law establishes the guilt of man and the prophets announce the deliverer of man from his guilt and the penalty of his sin. And so what's Paul's first thought when preaching the gospel? It's to establish guilt. He has to make sure that we know we're guilty. Apart from being cognizant of the guilt of sin and the need for repentance, there's no real groundwork being laid for the gospel. How does someone who doesn't recognize his nature as offensive to God, how does he call out to a savior? What's he being saved from? Recall Paul's message to the Athenians when he preached another famous but now sermon. Remember he walked into the marketplace in Athens and all the philosophers were there, the Stoics and the Epicureans, it said. All the ancient philosophers of those times were there. 
And Paul had this new message. No one had a message like his. And he came and he said, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent. And only after the announcement did he speak of the resurrection. First he talked about repentance. He talked about sin. He talked about the guilt of sin. But now the God that would free you from all that has come and he commands men to repent of sin. These philosophers thought themselves righteous. They didn't see any need in themselves for a savior. They were the wisest men in the earth. So the word of God did what it always does. It pierced even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and became what it is, a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart, the writer of Hebrews said of the word of God. The announcement of the sinfulness of man is the only true groundwork for the gospel, friends. And apart from that beginning, there's no representation of the gospel. So that becomes the answer to those who would ask why. Why is it necessary at this time, they were asking Paul, or he was anticipating the question. Why is it necessary at this time for God to introduce a gospel of salvation to all men? Why now? And the apostle gave his famous answer, going back to chapter 1, verse 18, where he said, why now? Because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That's why now, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. That's why. Because men suppress the truth for so long, someone has to come out and reveal the truth again. And this is the time. And the wrath of God is on man. And so he came to silence those who would be yet insensitive to their personal need for grace so that every mouth might be stopped. That's why he makes the point that all men are guilty of sin, that all might become guilty. And when he, they are all guilty, but he means might be cognizant of their guilt, of their offense to God. And then he says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. There's a piece of theology. Men knew God. That's, Paul is contending that. And by that he means that they had some innate knowledge born into them that they have ignored. They have ignored the inner light of God given to them at their birth. John begins his gospel with this, with this piece of doctrine. He said the true light, he's speaking of Christ, the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. The light of Christ gives light to every man coming into the world. There is something of the knowledge of God in all men. That's why all men are guilty. Whether they had the law of, or not, God was revealed to them inwardly. You hear unbelievers talk about God and the workings of God. And they talk about their conscience and being conscientious and not wanting to do bad things to other people or do something to someone that you didn't deserve. They speak of God. They speak of justice. These concepts are known. They're innately known in people. You know, there were other civilizations that had, um, that had decalogues, that had commandments. Decalogue refers to the Ten Commandments, right? There were other nations. Um, very famously, Hammurabi, king of Babylon, had a great set of principles that are very similar. Certainly include things like um, no adultery, no killing, no stealing. Those were always sacred things. Godless people knew of those things. How did they know? There's an inner light spirit. There's, a, there's some kind of witness of God in every man coming into the world. 
Paul says it again in, in, in uh, chapter 1 of Romans. He said, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. See, there's the problem. They knew God, but they treated him as if he wasn't God. Nor were they, what? Thankful. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So they knew God, didn't glorify him as God, nor were thankful. So friends, ignorance of God, I've said many times, is a form of insanity, and Paul moves right to that. I don't say this of my own reckoning. Paul says that very thing. He, he speaks of human denialism. He says they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Whose? Those who didn't glorify God. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Friends, the biggest fool is the one that's fooling himself. These wise men that you hear today are not very wise. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And they changed the glory of incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and then other things, birds and beasts and crawly things, right? In simple terms, friends, God is offended. He showed himself to them and they didn't honor him as God. In simple terms also, man somewhere in his ungrateful soul knows that God has good reason to be offended. Friends, people can be reached. They don't know much and they don't think about these subjects and they don't like to talk about them. But somewhere inside them, they know they're an offense to God. And that's not just mankind as a whole. That's each one individually, including ourselves. The only reason man is not on his knees pleading for forgiveness for his own ingratitude and sinfulness is because he's anesthetized himself. The Bible speaks of hardening the heart. You've heard that. Very famously, Pharaoh hardened his heart, right? What does that mean? Well, he shut himself off from divine things. He's given himself over to other gods, not listening anymore. And so the apostle convicts not only the Jews in this, but the whole of the pagan world. They turn God into an image of man or birds and beasts and crawly things, right? All those things exist, but they're not God. They're creations of God. All one has to do, friends, is peruse the history of world religions and see that men in their futile wisdom put forth idols of every sort so that they don't have to answer the voice within themselves that God indeed is calling them to a right recognition of who he is in his omnipotence. How do we know that? Because Paul tells us very clearly his invisible attributes are clearly seen. (laughs) There are some things that are invisible that all men clearly see. But with all the distractions and all the noise and all the devices and all the images and all the TV sets and all the yapping wise men all around us all the time, silence the voice inside us that searches these things. They're clearly seen, he says. And so Paul established for, the Jewish, for Jewish ears that the oracles of the written word of God that have been in their possession for centuries don't exonerate them as they supposed. They thought because God gave them this codified set of law that they were special. Well, they were in some ways special. He chose them to hold it, right? But they thought it exonerated them from sin, just holding it, just having it. You know, just saying the 10 Our Fathers and 12 Hail Marys. They thought it did that. 
I'm conflating two traditions there. I hope you saw what I did there. Um, they thought it exonerated them to have the oracles. And Paul says that it was an advantage, but it doesn't go all the way. It's a springboard, but it doesn't get you there. And that was its purpose. It was to show ourselves to ourselves. They were the ones that should have seen themselves as sinners. Friends, the law is a bit of a mirror, isn't it? Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Friends, when you look into the law and you're looking for justification, what you're seeing is that you're not justified. You haven't kept it. You don't measure up. Friend, every man is set adrift in a sea of sin, and there's no boat passing by to save them until now. But now things have changed, Paul says. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So the law witnessed it, but the righteousness isn't from the law. That's theology. All right? Now you know theology. (laughs) And so we may break up this section into two essential points. There's the righteousness of God apart from the law, and there's the righteousness of God portrayed in the law. Not provided for in the law, but portrayed. All right? The first point, which is the righteousness of God apart from the law, which he speaks about here in verse 21, is the gospel. That's the righteousness of God apart from the law. It's the message of the apostles. It's the announcement that the proclamations of old have been fulfilled in Christ. The righteous king has come. He's done his work. He said it was finished. The second point refers to the fact that the law had always pointed the way to its fulfillment. Witnessed, Paul said, by the law and the prophets as we've already demonstrated. So the New Testament refers to law as works or deeds, right? The New Testament talks about the law as deeds. And so we go to works because these two things are conjoined here. There's the law to those who had the law, the Jews. And for the rest of us, Paul says, we're a law unto ourselves. And we haven't even followed that law. How many resolutions have you broken? (laughs) So we, we might call it conscience, right? That's what we do call it. An innate conviction of right and wrong. And so the need for justification is to all men, both Jews and Greeks. As Paul would say, and as he did say to the Romans, therefore you're inexcusable, O man, whoever you are. He doesn't have to know the audience. You're inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, he said. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, or you who judge practice the same things. I'm sure the Pharisees loved hearing that. So the whole of the epistle to this point is to convict every soul of sin and to demonstrate that the written law which we hold in our hands was not there to free us from our sins, but rather to portray in graphic form our utter sinfulness. Hence one of Paul's famous but now statements. But now, he says, with resounding emphasis, friends, the but now ought to ring in our ears as the call to attention. It it, it could get long and tedious to keep hearing about the sinfulness of sin and that there's no hope in all of these things, but now things have changed. Righteousness has come apart from the law. So we may have slinked down in our despair. 
seeing that in our own power we're utterly, utterly lost. In other words, he's trying to say you're lost. You're, you deserve to be lost. You have no power to get unlost. I mean, if he just walked away now, where would they be? There'd be no Christianity, that's for sure. He would have established the doctrine of the spiritual condition of man quite well. But we want to know a little more, don't we? This would be as if the gospel ended when Jesus went into the tomb. And everyone went home and nobody wrote any more. Where would Christianity be without the resurrection? No, we need all the doctrine. We need all the counsel of God. The whole theological pie has to be put back together. So if the law was not our solution then there is no solution. That's what they would have thought. How can you condemn the law? If the law isn't our solution, God gave it to us, then what is there? This is the pill he gave us to take. And you're saying it's, it's not going to do the job. We can't even have hope if the law doesn't save us. Even obedience to the law was a pharisaical dream. They thought they were obeying it. They were dreaming. It couldn't be accomplished by the natural man. But now, friends... Righteousness has come from God. It wasn't going to come from earth out of our obediences and our following of rituals and our sacrificing of animals. Our righteousness has come. And what righteousness is that, you might ask? And so the apostle answers, it's the righteousness of God. It's not even that almost righteousness that you could produce in yourself. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's quite a theological mouthful. And to say I don't like theology and to have to deal with words like forbearance and redemption and propitiation. I think we better develop a love for theology. These aren't my words. You know? If Donnie was preaching, he'd put them in Latin and write them up on the board. Just to make it more confusing. Just teasing Donnie. (laughs) Donnie's been a great teacher in our Thursday sessions. Um, Friends, I hardly believe that the most strident scribe and Pharisee ever believed that a strict adherence to the law would make them as righteous as the giver of the law. I don't even think they thought that. I don't think they had a proper view of righteousness. I don't think they said, if we do all these things, if we sacrifice the Passover lamb and sprinkle the blood on the horns of the altar and say the prayers and eat it whole and dispose of it before sundown and don't break its bones, if we only do that, we'll be just like God. They didn't think that. That was the pharisaical dream I talk about. They're talking about a good enough sort of righteousness, what we might call a mere righteousness. But the righteousness apart from the law is the very righteousness of God himself. That had to sound like blasphemy to them, but not to us, because he's given us the whole picture, you see. It's God's prerogative to pronounce us righteous. He can do that. He's sovereign, but he's also a couple of other things, isn't he? He's holy, and he's just. So if 
if in his mercy he just tried to say, oh, forget about your sin, don't worry about it, I'll look the other way. He couldn't do that because then how does he remain just? How does he remain holy? So he has to find some way of restitution. There's another theological word. It's really a legal term. So if you don't like theology, study law. If you don't like law, study economics because redemption and propitiation are economical terms. You know what redemption is. You take your bottles, you bring them to the redemption center so that they may live again (laughs) in some other form, a dish. (laughs) By the way, that doesn't happen. For you earth lovers, that just is not happening. Recycling is another pharisaical dream. I digress. The righteousness they sought of old was a mere righteousness. It was a good enough sort of righteousness. But the righteousness apart from the law is the very righteousness of God. Friends, Jesus Christ is God. Try to get a hold of this theology. I know it's hard. He's sinless. We all know that, right? He's perfect. He's not only good like God, he is God. And his righteousness is yours. We have the righteousness. Well, Jesus, I, I don't feel righteous. I, don't, I mean, I look around. You people don't look righteous. How do you, you, I, you... Maybe you look like good people, but you're not God. The same God who said, let there be light, said, let there be righteousness in those who have faith in Christ. And there was righteousness. You see what I mean? But he's still left with the dilemma. He has to pay for the sins of man. Somebody has to die. You know, in a covenant, we like to say about covenants, we like to say, oh, a covenant's an agreement. A covenant is an agreement, all right, but if someone breaks the agreement, that person has to die. They're called blood covenants. We don't make covenants, we cut covenants. They're usually signed in blood of some kind. The ancients knew a little more about the diatheke, the covenant, right? We don't know a lot about that. I always said the only people left on earth who have a, a ready access to the whole concept of covenant is the mafia. They understand it. They get it very well. And so it's God's prerogative to pronounce us righteous. But there's one caveat. Our merciful God is still a just God and must remain so. And the sins committed must be atoned for. Restitution must be made. The sin debt must be paid. And once paid for, God is just to declare us righteous. One more function of the law. We're in covenant with God. The law has been broken. Someone has to die. It's a covenant, right? Not an agreement. It's a covenant. Someone has to die. So either man has to die or God has to die. Now we're getting it, right? God will accept a substitute. That's an ancient concept of debt. You know, if someone was in debtor's prison of old, and I'm talking, it even came here to the United States for a long time. If you owed a lot of money, they'd put you in jail. I never quite understood it because now how do you get paid back? But you know what they would do? You would, you would pay someone's debt of old. They'd become an indentured servant. That was all throughout Bible history, Right? Or you could actually go into the debtor prison and take the place, be a placeholder for that man while he went out and tried to pay his debt. And that was done. Christ-like exchange, isn't it? We don't think that way anymore. That's why these concepts have to be um, retaught to us. The sin debt must be paid, and once paid for, God is just to declare us righteous. So he's merciful and he's loving, right? 
and he's self-sacrificing, and he's paid the debt. God worked it all out. It wasn't easy. It was the greatest cost imaginable, the death of God the Son. There's no sacrifice that we could make to pay for our sins short of our own death. For the wages of sin is death. He'll say that later. But God in his mercy paid the wages. He paid the debt. It seems, however, that we must believe in him who paid. Now, there's a point I want to make this morning, and I didn't have place in the notes to do it. So I'm, uh, I'm going to go off the teleprompter. We're a Reformed church. We believe in the so-called doctrines of grace, which have been given the, name, the nickname the five points of Calvinism. And most people um, can understand them to some degree. You, I'll tell you this, you won't come through a proper understanding of the book of Romans without knowing that those, that those uh, doctrines represent the truth of the gospel. All right? Spurgeon called them the nickname for the gospel. Um, But when you get to point number three, it's called limited atonement. And we don't like that. Limited. Oh, you're limiting God? No, but God limits himself. So let me ask you something. If God paid the sin debt for all men, and God is just, he would never accept two payments for one sin debt, right? So why do some people go to hell? If he, pay, he either paid their debt or he didn't. He only paid the sin debt for the church, who were the elect of God down through the ages. He didn't pay it for everyone. I know we recoil at that, and we think it makes God unfair, but it doesn't. He would never accept two payments for one debt. So if he paid for you, you're coming to Christ and you're going to be with him in eternity. It's called limited atonement. So it isn't that God's power is limited, it's the scope of his power is limited. Not every person believes the gospel, right? But if their sin debt was paid, they'd go to heaven because God's just. You see what I'm saying? There's no way around this. There's no logical way for you to deny that doctrine without confronting the injustice of God. And I challenge you, to explain it to me. So we must believe the Lord Jesus Christ is the surrogate. He's the substitute. Remember the scapegoat? The scapegoat, they would bring a goat in at the time of uh, Passover and the priests would put their hands on it and they would, they would transmit their sins to the goat and they'd set the goat free into the countryside. Our sins gone out from Israel. They'd set it free and it would run off and do whatever goats do. Be eaten or eat everything in sight, one or the other, or both. And so the goat would go off into the, Israel, into the wilderness, the scapegoat. And so by faith in him, we're relieved of our debt. Jesus became our substitute, our scapegoat, if you will, right? We're set free. We've been paid for. We've been declared righteous by the same power that said, let there be light, and there was light. Jesus said it this way, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And so we may rejoice in our new place before God. We may exercise our new righteousness. We may do all sorts of things that we could not do before. Friends, we can worship God in our homes. We can delight in the Sabbath day and come together and worship God the way he intends us to do on on the Lord's day, right? 
We do all sorts of things that we couldn't do, but there's one thing we can't do. We may not boast. Boast about what? You can, you can probably get away with boasting about a couple of things like, look at the beautiful wife I have. You can probably get away with that with the evangelicals, right? But you can't say, look how righteous I am. Isn't it great that God chose people like me? You can't boast like that. That's his whole point. For our freedom from sin is a gift. It's not a human accomplishment. It's holy and entirely of God. And so in verse 27, he says, then where is the boasting, right? It's excluded, he writes. By what law? Of works? No, by the law of faith. Because if, if it was by works, you could boast. I followed the law. I deserved my salvation. I received it, and I'm righteous, praise God. And the Pharisees were doing that. Remember the Pharisee at the altar, and next to him was the publican? Thank you, Lord, you didn't make me like him. <laughs> Can you imagine boasting that way? Christians know better than that, right? So what Paul, when Paul speaks of boasting, he's speaking of glory, or what he says, glorying in ourselves, right? He's, when he speaks of glory in this context, he's speaking of taking credit. When we say he's glorying in himself, right? He's taking credit. Let me borrow a famous Pauline expression from another place. Maybe you've heard this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And let's not end here. We so often end here. Let's go to the next part of it. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, all the good works that you do once you're saved are done in Christ and you get credit for them, some sort of reward for them in the afterlife, presumably. There's a lot of teaching on that, right? But you didn't really do the good works. God prepared them beforehand and decided that you'd walk in them. And while we're at it, let's take one more plunge into Paul's classic description of the lessons of law and grace and one more revelation that our salvation is all of God and nothing of our own effort. And you'll see that this passage relates wonderfully to the passage we're examining today. And so again from Ephesians we read, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants. You had no hope. You were without God in the world. But now, he says to the Ephesians, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by what? By the blood of Christ. Now, as we enter this arena of gospel preaching, let's get a handle on one thing that's very essential. We love to simplify, and I get that. I get the need to simplify today. We're not in a society of deep thinkers. I'd like to think we're in a church of deep thinkers, but I go up and down in those thoughts. So... um, our evangelist, I'm so glad you guys laugh when I, when I insult the whole church. It's so, it's so pleasing. But we love to simplify our teaching so that our evangelistic endeavors in the world are amenable and palatable to the public mind as it currently exists. In other words, be all things to all men. We were told by, I don't know, that's somewhere in the Bible, who knows where. Most people don't think deeply about such things as life and death until they're confronted with those things, Right? 
Most people don't think seriously at all about sin and salvation until they're confronted. It seems like the prospect of death clears out a lot of distractions. Such things are relegated to the theologically minded. So we tend to simplify. And it seems to me we simplify too much. We can't preach deliverance in Christ. We can't preach deliverance by the blood. We can't preach faith over works without acknowledging some very basic theological facts. And I'm aware that the current attention span of the man on the street in our day has been stunted by mass media. We're at, you ever notice we're at sort of a headline, talking points generation? You know, they, they, some newspapers now don't even include the story. They just include the headlines. You know, they don't give you the context. That's called propaganda. They're trying to get you to believe something that is true in a certain context, but not in every context. And so we're a headline society. We go from one grave announcement. I hear pundits every day, and I listen to them too, but I hear them say things like, you ought to be worried about this. You ever hear the guys on TV or your pet website tell you, this is something you really need to be worried about. Don't tell me what i got to worry about. We go from one grave announcement to the other. We care little for context. We're a talking point society, and it's spilled over into the church. We say things like, just believe in Jesus. Did you ever hear that? Do you realize how impossible a statement that is to a person who's never confronted Jesus? Just believe in Jesus? What does that mean? They say, that's our gospel. But they don't take the time to declare who Jesus is. You know, Paul specifically said to the Galatians, they were preaching the wrong Jesus. Another Jesus, he said. The cults believe in Jesus, but theirs is another Jesus. He's not the Jesus of Scripture, who as as the great creed says, true God of true God. The cults, the Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Very good people uh, with Christian ethics, but don't know God. Because the Jesus they preach isn't the one of the Bible. They even change the words. He's a creation of God. That's another Jesus, right? So it matters. Just believe on the name, we say. Friends, what name? My great-grandfather's name was Jesus. Can I go to heaven just by believing in my great-grandfather? Gesù, the Italians called him. Friends, I don't know if you know this, but every other Hispanic kid on the street is named, is named Jesus. I don't know if you've noticed that. I was in Home Depot the other day. I saw a guy that said, Jesus. And I looked at him. I went, Jesus. <laughs> I, prof- I profiled him. Um, I think such things are passed off as a substitute for theology. Oh, just believe in Jesus and walk away. Now, that's a good way to... Um, because people usually have some concept of these things still, although less and less and less as time goes on. Maybe that's a way to sort of bait someone into a conversation. I get all of that. I'm not saying never use them, but don't use it as a substitute for real theology. For the record, friends, Jesus is an English word. It's a translation of the Greek name Jesus, which is a translation of the Hebrew Joshua, which is in Aramaic... Jesus' tongue, Yeshua or Yahashua or some such thing, right? So the word Jesus isn't perhaps as meaningful as we would like it to be, although it is for us because we understand the fullness of the person who bears the name, right? 
There's no access to the Jesus of Scripture by simply mouthing a common name. Friends, there's four Jesuses in the New Testament. Test me on that. You got a topical index in your Bible? A topical index is a great tool. Friends, theology is essential to the gospel, and we cannot proceed without a basic knowledge of it. And when I say proceed, I mean proceed in understanding the book of Romans. And, and for another thing, people say, you know, Pastor, you, we understand you, you love history. I don't love history. I, I like knowing things. Um, there's no way you can get through Romans chapters 8, 9, and 10 without knowing history. Just no way. Paul doesn't explain all the generations. He expects you to know that Isaac is Abraham's son and Rebekah is his wife. He expects you to know that. He expects you to know that Jacob and Esau are twins, and he expects you to know the relationship between them and the history that endured between them. He just expects it. He takes for granted. He expects you to know that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and what that meant. He just throws those things out there. He doesn't explain them all, and he's writing to a diverse group. They're not all Jews. He knows the Jews probably know that. He expects you to know some history. He expects you to have some access or some interest in theology. And as Christians, we really have to be there. Just look at the words of Paul. Look at this marvelous word, propitiation. Friends, that's our word. You don't hear people outside the church talk about propitiation. Oh, yeah, I I propitiated my cable bill the other day. You know, I redeemed myself from their scorn. People don't talk like that. Those are our words. It's a theological term, but it has to be understood What about redemption? I've already talked some about that. If you don't like theology, study economics. That'll get you there with redemption. Redemption's an economic term. It means to buy back. The real owner comes and buys his stuff back. God bought you back. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He paid the price for you, and you're not your own. You don't belong to yourself. I did a whole series years ago called, To Whom Do You Belong? It's all about belonging. You know, I told you years ago, I was out on the second beach. We all love second beach down in the, that area of the world, down south of the border, you know, in, in Rhode Island. Second beach is, um, I was on second beach, and I see this guy with a bracelet, one of those plastic, you know, colorful bracelets that said, it said, uh, believe. Believe in what? I don't know. I don't know. Is this a Christian thing I'm, I'm getting here? But I'll tell you this. You'll get, I, I said, we got to start our own bracelet thing, and I, I still want to do this, only I want it to say belong. And people go, belong? Belong to what? Oh, I'm glad you asked. You know? Um, people don't know they have to belong. People think that the church is some, um, you know, ancillary thing outside of the faith. You can take it or not take it. You can belong to it or not belong to it. The church is the people of God, friends. You know the two rules. You have to believe what Jesus believes, and you have to love who Jesus loves, and Jesus loves the church, so you've got to love the church. So if the hearer of the gospel has no interest in theology, he must develop an interest. Lloyd-Jones said it this way, you say that such a message will not appeal to people today. They're not interested in theology. The answer is that they must become interested in theology if they are to become Christians. They must hear the truth and must believe it. Friends, it's simple, but you have to at least know what the terms mean, right? Theology begins with the spiritual condition of man. Friends, we have to know the theology of the human soul, or we can't know our need for the Savior, and we have to establish that in a hearer. 
That's why a good evangelical tool is to bring people into the church. And I would like to see more of it happen. Bring one person. Bring one family with you. Man is utterly ruined in sin. That is theology. It progresses to seeking a way of escape. A way back into the good graces of God. That's theology. And it's by faith in a crucified substitute. That's theology. And you must find a way to preach it and let the Holy Spirit work on the mind of the hearer. You might say it's too complicated. I I blew him away. But we do have the Spirit of God working in it when we do this. In order for man to come to terms intellectually, he must develop an interest in theology. We say, oh, I... That's just for people that um, have a head relationship. They don't have a heart relationship. Friends, you can't have a heart relationship without the head. How do you think it gets into the heart? Which, by the way, isn't the heart, it's the spirit. The understanding is here. It always starts here, right? Even the love is increased by knowledge. I pray that that your knowledge may increase, that your love may increase, In knowledge, he said to the Philippians. Even knowledge increases love. Love is increased by knowledge. You have to understand terms intellectually. But the man on the street doesn't want to. There's nothing that he believes to be so uninteresting as theological principles. And what does he think of theology? He thinks those principles are nothing more than the strange opinions of religious people. And you know what? He's right. But it is the gospel. Friends, the gospel is a strange thing to the modern mind. It's a strange thing to the modern mind. And friends, I, I want to tell you, no one, anciently people weren't any more interested in theology than they are today, really. Everyone might have had their own theology, but they didn't want to be confronted with the theology of Christianity. And so we have to recognize that this is part of the curse, the, the the depraved mind, this professing to be wise and becoming fools. The depraved and reprobate mind of God has given our world over to us, uh, in no, it, it, giving our world over to it is in no way ready to receive a full-throated presentation of the theology of the soul and its need for salvation. I would also point out that the Christian mind of today's religious landscape is subject also to all the same distractions as the worldly person. We all love the distractions. We all have our devices in hand. We all have our televisions on. Some of us can't go from one room to the other without seeing an image projected on a screen and a self-important pundit putting forth his talking points. And so just as the man on the street has no appetite to learn theology, neither does the believer have an appetite to teach it. Yet the basics, at least, at the very least, must be taught. Man is sinful, God is righteous, there's a gap between them. So certain principles have to be known. Have you ever heard someone say, I don't care how I was saved, I only care that I was saved. How do you even know if you don't know how? I don't need to know theology. All I need is Jesus. I think I demonstrated that one already. That's the sentiment of the intellectual, lazy Christian, friends. A person of this sort cannot possibly hope to grow to maturity in Christ. We read of this very thing from Hebrews, and I'm going to end with this for two reasons. One, I ran out of paper. 
For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. The first theological principles of the oracles of God, right? And you may have come to need milk and not solid food, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Friends, don't stunt your own spiritual growth by abhorring a discussion of theology. It should be interesting to the Christian. And I think for the most part to the Christian it is. Friends, this epistle is thick with theology and theological terms. In order to claim access to it, we must be taught the first principles of theology. Our Father, in Jesus' name, we pray you would immerse us in your word and immerse us in the truths and the study of God which we call theology, O Lord. We ask in Jesus' name that we would eat the solid food of the word of God and see growth. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.